As I pointed out, the legend can be traced back to the Mahabharata, where the sage Markandeya narrates the story of Savitri to Yudhishthira. We have seen the background to this. Now, Sri Aurobindo has taken up this legend almost in its entirety without adding any Upakshanas to it, any subplots, sub-stories to it. But he has made some significant alterations, not in terms of the story element, but in terms of the importance that he has given to different events in the story. For example, yesterday I talked about Ashwapati's yoga. As I pointed out, in the original Mahaparata story, Ashwapati performs a tapasya seeking progeny. Now, Shurabindo has taken up this idea and we have here Ashwapati's Yoga. As I pointed out again yesterday, where Vyasa devotes ten lines to describe Ashwapati's arduous tapasya which goes on for eighteen years, Shurabindo devotes to this enterprise ten thousand nine hundred sixty-eight lines. <laughs> Almost 22 cantos out of 49 cantos are devoted to this event. Why does he do so? This was the main theme I talked about yesterday. Who is this Ashwapati? What was his quest? And I implied that if you want to find out what Shurabindo was doing here in Pondicherry for 40 years between 1910 and 1950, even after having acquired the highest cities of traditional yoga, you have to go to Ashwapati's yoga and try to understand Ashwapati's quest. What is it that Ashwapati was trying to do? Now, just Ashwapati's yoga then has been used as a symbol for the quest of man for perfection on earth, perfection of life on earth. We'll talk about this in some more detail at other points in our story. <coughs> the second development, second departure as I pointed out, is not departure but the twist that Shurabindu gives in the Mahabharata story, Savitri performs what is called or what has been described there as a Triratra vow, a vow which spread over three days and three nights. During these three days and three nights, she has to stand in one place, one particular place. She doesn't take any food. So this is the austerity she performs for three days and three nights. Now, in Shurabindo Savitri, this has been transformed, changed into Savitri's Yoga, which is the theme of the whole of Book 7, the entire book, Book 7, with its 
seven cantos except the first canto, the six cantos of book seven, from the second to the seventh, all these are devoted to Savitri's yoga. And so, as you can see, out of these 49 cantos, 29 cantos are directly devoted to a description of two yogas, namely Ashwapadesh yoga and Savitri's yoga. In many ways, Shorvindo's yoga and also the mother's yoga. Now the third development is that, as I told you, in the original story, when Ashwapati finds that no suitable young man has come forward to claim Savitri's hand, and like the traditional Indian father, he is very worried about the daughter's marriage. She has come of age. So he sends her out into the open world to find a companion for life. Then immediately after that, the next scene, Savitri has already completed her journey, her quest, and she is coming back to her father to report to him that she has found this young man called Satyavan. This is the original story. Whereas Shurabindo takes great interest in the quest itself. He describes the quest in great detail. For example, a major part of Book 4 is devoted to Savitri's quest. Where did she go? What did she find? And here you have glorious descriptions of the various seasons. Shurabindo's favorite seasons being the spring and the monsoon. These are his favorite seasons. Then in book 5 you have a whole book talking about love, the book of love, where Satyavan and Savitri meet, how they recognize each other, how they discover each other and then they enter into what is called Gandharva Viva. They get married to each other in the Gandharva way. Now in the original story nothing of this is found. And Shorvindo takes great delight in describing this. If Shorvindo had written nothing else but just this book five, the book of love, I think you still have made a mark because nobody has written about human love in this most fulfilling manner. And he says, the touch of the heaven doesn't cancel but fulfills the earth. So the claims of the earth are recognized, the claims of heavens are not overriding, they don't cancel them. And so he handles this theme of love with such great beauty, with such great finesse. It's a great delight just to read Book 5. So for most people, particularly if you are young at heart, I think a good starting point of Savitri would be Book 5, when Satyavan and Savitri come together. That may ignite the fire of aspiration in you. This entire thing is new. Then, as I was pointing out when we concluded, when we stopped yesterday, <coughs> Savitri's mother is only mentioned by name by Vyasa. She has no particular role in the story. In, in Shorvindo Savitri, she has a very, very important role of elucidating from Narada. Narada, as you know, 
is visiting the court when Savitri has come back, she's sitting there. And so Savitri's mother, when she comes to know that Savitri had chosen this man, young man called Satyavat, who had just one year to live, she is flabbergasted like most mothers. She is very anxious, very worried, so she tries to dissuade Savitri from going ahead and asks her to go out once again and choose a second time. And Savitri, of course, refuses to do that. And when Savitri is adamant, when Savitri is absolutely refuses to do anything, if one year is all I have in Satyavan, she says, one year is enough for me. That time, Narad, Savitri's mother, who is not named here, but in the original Mahaparata story, she is called Malami. She turns to Narad and asks him this basic fundamental question. What has Savitri done to deserve this misfortune? She is a young girl of 18. She has hurt nobody. She has done no harm. She has done no evil. Why should then her life be accursed? There were at this particular point of time at least a thousand young eligible men in this country. Why did Savitri's chariot drive her just to this one young man who had one year to live? What happened to the 999 other people? Why did the chariot not go there? In other words, what is this mysterious thing called fate? Why does it strike us in the way it does? Why is it, in other words, do we have so much pain and suffering in this world? Is God whom we describe as the ocean of kindness, as omniscient, as omnipotent, why has He created God who is so perfect in every way? God is the very definition of perfection. Why has He created this imperfect world, this world which is a veil of tears and suffering? Could God have created a slightly better world? This is the question Savitri's mother asks Narad. And Narad in reply tries to explain how evil has come about, what is pain, how does that originate, what is its place, and all this which Yorvindo describes in great detail in the life divine in a metaphysical fashion, that's the metaphysical treatment. Here, the same theme is taken up once again and described and the whole problem is analyzed for us in the most poetic way. This is something you do not find in the original Mahabharata story. Now, the next major departure, it's not a departure, in the Mahabharata story, Yama is just the god of death. That's about all. He is the god of death. Like many gods, he is a god. But in Shurabindo's story, Yama represents not just the god of death. He represents all the forces that oppose evolutionary progress. Yama is Hitler. Yama is Mussolini. Yama is everybody that dampens human enthusiasm, human spirit for progress, for harmony, 
it comes in many, many different ways. Uh, we could give you any number of examples of, of people who represent the force of Yama, the god of death, in the modern world. But for fear of hurting people's sentiments, I won't do that. Point I'm trying to make is Yama is not just a god, he symbolizes forces that oppose evolutionary progress. And this is very clearly pointed out, it's clearly brought out in the in, in this epic, in Shorbindo's epic, and that's a major departure. Just as Savitri symbolizes the upward movement, the love that is necessary, the divine love that has come down from the supreme heights so that the human aspirant can progress, all that represents an obstacle to this human progress is represented by the God of death. One more, a final departure, but a very significant one, is that in the original stories, there is a kind of a dialogue, a colloquy between Savitri and the God of Death. It's a very interesting discussion there, and Savitri emerges as a very smart, very well-spoken, very well-read young girl who dazzles the God of Death by her eloquence, by her diction, by her good manners, by her reading. And Yama, like a grand old daddy, is very pleased with the performance of this young girl. And he keeps giving her boons after boons. The first boon he says, I'll give you, ask any boon. She says, all right, let Yumatsena, Satyavan's father, who was rendered blind, let him get his eyesight, so he gets his eyesight. Let him get back his kingdom, he gets back his kingdom. The third boon, let my father, who had only one daughter, be blessed with hundred sons. All right, hundred sons, Savitri has hundred brothers. And then this goes on and on. And before the God of death knows what he has done, he has already blessed that Savitri be the mother of hundred sons. Now she says, the righteous way to have hundred sons for me is to have my husband back. And you are a dharmaraya yourself. So don't you think it is proper for you to return Satyavad soul? God of death, like a benign grandfather, smiles and says, Okay, I'll give you Satyavad back. <coughs> so there, Savitri is basically comes through as a, an advocate of righteousness, of dharma. Now, Shurabindu takes up this idea of dharma and dharma in the 20th century, which is a very a century of great complexities. Dharma today, if you want to define dharma, what is dharma? You can't define it in the terms in which Vyasa defined it 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Nothing. Vyasa didn't know all that happened between then and now. The human mind has become so complex, so many new issues have come out. And so, this time, when there is this debate between Yama and Savitri in Shurabindu's epic, it's a dazzling display of all kinds of intellectual positions. Yama takes various intellectual positions, tries to argue against Savitri. And here in this enterprise, Yama takes almost every conceivable philosophic position one could take against Sri Aurobindo's own enterprise. If you want to find out, you know, nobody has said it is possible to establish on earth the kingdom of God. 
Kingdom of God, of course, can be, but it will always be on the other side of that. Not here and now. Rishi Shorvindo's claim that this terrestrial life will be made perfect. This is what he claimed, and this was the aim of his yoga. And as you can see, he was talking about a new level of consciousness emerging, the super mind coming down and so on. If you go around and ask people what, whether they accept what Shurabindu has said, most people, if they are sympathetic, they will say, oh, he was a great dreamer, but I don't think this is ever possible. Why is it not possible? There are a number of reasons. Why did Shankaracharya not talk about it, Madhvacharya not talk about it, somebody else not talk about it, why does Shurabindu talk about it? Let's not go into these arguments, but the various kinds of arguments can be given against Shurabindu's enterprise. Now, if you want to find the strongest arguments against Shurabindu, you don't have to read any of his critics. You just read Savitri. Of course, some of them are also found in the life divine. And Yama expresses this so powerfully. He at one time argues from the point of view of nihilism. You wonder whether he is Sartre himself arguing against Shurabindu's position. At another time he argues from the position of realism. At third time he takes the position of absolute Vedanta, absolute Advaita. At another point he takes Buddhist viewpoint, argues again from that perspective. So Yama takes these various positions and Savitri confronts him and tries to answer, tries to clarify why what she is trying to do is still probable or has to be done. So this is a very, very interesting part of this epic, about 100 pages, uh, books 9, 10 and 11. Almost three books where the God of Death and Savitri have gone with having this debate. Uh, that's something new. New in spirit because Shurabindo was writing in the 20th century, Vyasa wrote what he was writing a long, long, long time ago. So these are the six different ways in which the story of Savitri in Shurabindo's epic comes out as different from the original story in Vyasa's epic. <coughs> now, I tried to point out yesterday what Shurabindo must have found fascinating about the story of Savitri. Remember, I referred to two other poems of his. One is called Urvasi and the other Love and Death. In all these poems, there are three characters, Love, Death and Earth, Life on Earth. <coughs> there is a confrontation of these three and Shurabindo takes up this, develops this story in different ways and what fascinates him most about Savitri is Savitri is not willing to bargain life on earth for anything the God of death is willing to give her. He says, if you want to give me anything at all, it must have meaning in terms of earthly existence. Nothing here has any value in terms of earthly existence unless it has a material manifestation. It is quite surprising, nobody in the entire spiritual history of mankind affirmed the claims of matter so unequivocally as Shurabindo did. Even if God has to come down here, God first of all has to prepare matter 
the laws of matter have to be recognized. Matter has to be prepared to receive God. Matter's laws have to be respected because this is the name of the game. God chose to create this world out of matter. So matter also is divine. Matter also has its very important claims and therefore any perfection that you can think of must be realizable in material terms here on earth. This is, was, this is always painful with this emphasis and that's why the story of Savitri must have appealed to him a great deal. However, as I pointed out, this story of Savitri begins as a Vedic myth and what Shurabindo must have found in that story, he himself talks about it in a note. Uh, I'll read that note. <clears throat> if you have the new edition of Savitri, it's printed uh, at the very beginning of that uh, new edition, but it is found in other writings also. The tale of Satyavan and Savitri is recited in the Mahabharata as a story of conjugal love, conquering death. Con conjugal love, the story of conjugal love, conquering death. But this legend is, as shown by many features of the human tale, one of the many symbolic myths of the Vedic cycle. It is one of the many symbolic myths of the Vedic cycle. I pointed out yesterday, when a Vedic myth becomes a Puranic story, very often it becomes, takes a popular shape, a popular form. In taking a popular form, very often the central trust of the myth is lost. And that's why Satyavar and Savitri's story is generally regarded as a story of the glory of Pativratya. That was not the original point. The original point is, as, as your window points out, Satyavan is the soul carrying the divine truth of being within itself, but descended into the grip of death and ignorance. Who are Satyavans? I often tell people there are three stories in this. One is, of course, the inner story of Shorabindo's yoga, Shorabindo's quest, two, mother's yoga, mother's quest, three, each one of us is a character in this story. The aspiration for truth that we all carry, with which we all begin our lives, but we get lost waylaid as it were, by forces of ignorance and we get lost, caught up in ignorance and finally death. That is the Satyavan. Satyavan we carry, each one of us carries Satyavan within us. This is the Satyavan who is here, caught up in ignorance, in material ignorance. And Savitri is the divine word, daughter of the sun, Goddess of the Supreme Truth, who comes down and is born to save. Savitri, the Divine Grace, which comes down and tries to save the human soul, which is an aspirant to truth, which always has been saying, This is the soul. This is the aspiration we all carry within us. The quest for the infinite is the only quest that we all have. 
It is very often camouflaged. We go after finite things. But why then that finite things never really satisfy us? There must be very intelligent people in the world, not just people like me, but very intelligent people. Why then? The more intelligent you are, the more of a mess you make of life. Why is it? The reason simply is, nothing will satisfy the human soul except the infinite. The human soul looks for the infinite. That is the source of light, that is the source of bliss, that is the source of immortality. And that's what we are looking for. But, since we don't know what we are looking for, we think we are looking for wealth, we are looking for fame, we are looking for name, we are looking for power. And until this entire journey is finished, we won't hear even the call of the enchanting fruit of the Lord. And this divine grace, this solitary comes down to help this aspiring soul of man to evolve further. That's what he's saying. Who is Ashwapati? Ashwapati, the lord of the force, her human father, is the lord of tapasya, the concentrated energy of spiritual endeavor that helps us to rise from the mortal to the immortal planes. Even before Savitri can be born, you require a ground prepared by Ashwapati. You need this concentrated spiritual energy. This has to be produced first and then only can Savitri be born. Who is Vimatsena? Vimatsena is Ashwapati's, sorry, Satyaman's father is Vimatsena. Vimatsena, Lord of the Shining Hosts. That's what in Sanskrit it means. Vimatsena, Lord of the Shining Hosts. Father of Satyaman is the divine mind here, fallen blind, losing its celestial kingdom of vision and to that lost its kingdom of glory. Still, Yorubindo is saying, this story of Savitri, the myth of Savitri is not something that once happens and is finished. The story of Savitri is enacted in every age. This is enacted in this age, it was enacted in the years past, it was enacted every time. When the human soul is arrested in its progress and doesn't know how to rise beyond where it finds itself, Savitri is born as the divine grace to help Satyava to go beyond this impediment. Therefore he says, this is not a mere allegory. The characters are not personified qualities, but incarnations or emanations of living and conscious forces with whom we can enter into concrete touch and they take human bodies in order to help man and show him the way from his mortal state to a divine consciousness and immortal life. So this is what Shurabindu himself told us, what he found in the story, what is the symbolism behind this story. Now, as I said, Satyavan is this aspiring human spirit caught here in the mesh of ignorance and death, 
Savitri with divine grace, divine love which has come down. And if you want beautiful words in which your window explains this very clearly, you will find them in page, on page 703. <coughs> Sorry, page 702, about four lines from the bottom. <coughs> the context is not important for our present purposes, otherwise you take with the remaining 15 minutes I have. Now, he here refers to Satyavan. Okay? He is my soul that climbs from nascent night. Did you find the line? Did you get the line? Yes. Okay. He is my soul. Who is Satyavan? He is my soul that climbs from nascent night through life and mind and supernature's vast to the supernal light of timelessness and my eternity hid in moving time and my boundlessness stuck by curve of space. It climbs to the greatness it has left behind and to the beauty and joy from which it fell to the closeness and sweetness of all things divine to life without bounds and life illimitable. Taste of the depths of the ineffable's bliss, touch of the immortal and the infinite. He is my soul that gropes out to the beast to reach humanity's heights of using form. When out of the beast, man came. I'm sure this Savitri episode was enacted in some form. He is my soul that gropes, gropes out of the beast to reach humanity's heights of lucent thought and the vicinity of truth sublime. He is the Godhead. Who is Satyavan? He is the Godhead growing in human lives. In human lives, there is a Godhead which is slowly growing. That is the Satyavan. He is the Godhead growing in human lives and the body of earth beings forms. He is the soul of man climbing to God. In nature's search, out of earth's ignorance. Who is Savitri then? If this is Satyavan, who is Savitri? Shurabindu himself explains. O Savitri, thou art my spirit's heart. Satyavan is the consciousness, Savitri is the heart. The revealing force, voice of my immortal world, the face of truth upon the roads of time, pointing to the souls of men, the roots to God. Savitri is the one who points to the souls of men, the roots to God. This is the way to go. She is the one who helps, she is the one who directs, and that's why she is the mother. Why the dim light from the veiled spirit's feet falls upon matter stark in inconscient sleep, as if a pale moonbeam on a dense plane, and mind in a half-light moves amid half-truths, and the human heart knows only human love, and life is a stumbling and imperfect force, and the body counts out its precarious days 
you shall be born into man's dubiousness in forms that hide the soul's divinity and show to veils of the true earth doubting air my glory breaking as through clouds a sun or burning like a rare and inward fire and with my nameless influence fill men's lives <coughs> this are the this supreme grace this ishwari has to descend from the transcendental heights because the ishwar is caught in the meshes of ignorance this is the rasa who comes down to rescue the krishna who mischievously is lost here in the veil of ignorance <coughs> this is the central symbolism then if you take it to refer to each one of us there is each one of us this aspiration for truth this satyavan struggling helplessly very often giving up all hopes of ever rising beyond where he is and then comes divine grace in whatever form directs to him helps him prods him along this is what happens in the life of all of us this is an important part of the symbolism of savitri there are number of other levels it's a multi layered symbol so if we just talked about symbolism i think we we'll have to go on and on i'll just mention one or two yesterday i talked about ashwamedha yoga greatly and said ashwamedha is basically the modern representative of modern man who is versed in all that the east and the west have to offer and yet looking around he finds human life is still miserable the burden of suffering of man said still remains undiminished exploitation cruelty disharmony you find in various forms why is this all happening <coughs> on page 6 and 9 you have beautiful lines which express this bewilderment this puzzlement the very last two lines the avatar sevim and died in vain vain was the sage's thought the prophet's voice in vain is seen the shining upward way earth lies unchanged beneath the circling sun it was very tragic she loves her fall tragic thing about this earth about the human condition is that man seems to love his fall she loves her fall and no omnipotence her water imperfections can erase for so man's 
crooked ignorance, heaven's straight line, or follow by a world of death and gods. This is Ashwapati's puzzlement. Almost all the courses that we have tried, courses of intellect, we have tried education, we have tried science, we have tried religion, we have tried philosophy, we have tried morality, we have tried what we generally call spirituality. Spirituality gets hold of the soul within, but then everything else is lost. The earth is lost. The very purpose for which God built this wonderful, beautiful world and the evolutionary nature invested such stupendous creativity to create a man out of a handful of dust. It is good to remember that we are made of dust, but it is not always very healthy to remind you you are no more than a handful of dust. You probably are made of a handful of dust, but your destiny is to represent here, to manifest here, in this creation made out of a handful of dust, God's perfection. This is something that we must remember all the time. And spirituality of a certain kind has just reminded us that we are made of dust. Ignore all the human achievements all the great things that we have achieved, are they to be thrown into the waste paper basket of spirituality? They have no use for any of these things. Why then did God create this enormous facade, this enormous thing called civilization, this creation? Since creation began 15 billion years ago after the Big Bang, such tremendous creativity has gone into the creation of this world. And we are saying, no, we will all cancel it and then go back with our soul and say, God, we are back. God will ask us, what have you brought with you? Nothing. So if you want this perfection here, you need to bring a transcendental path. That is what Ashwati finds out. The path we are not talking about electric power, we are not talking about nuclear power. These are powers of a secondary nature. The primary powers are the powers of consciousness in man. The world is imperfect. Not because people in Asura with the Prime Minister. The world is imperfect because the human consciousness is what it is. And changing one man Leading him somewhere doesn't change this world. As I pointed out yesterday, this may look like an arrogant <coughs> statement made by me, <coughs> who is neither a yogi nor a philosopher nor anything. All the spiritual traditions that we have here and elsewhere, they have helped us a great deal. They have helped individuals to escape from the mortal coils of ignorance. But is that all? Spirituality really works? Is it spirituality? Is it the very purpose of spirituality to bring this creation nearer perfection? <coughs>
For that, what do you need? If human mind had the capacity, we by now would have created the whole world. Have we made a happy world? We have not yet been able to make a happy world. We make a mess of everything. Science we have made a mess of. Religion we have made a mess of. Anything you give man will make a mess of it. Why? This mess-making tendency is a characteristic feature of the human mind. Something beyond the human mind has to come. And that is why something that is not yet available, the transcendental Supreme Mother has to come down for it. She has to be born and make it possible for man to realize here, to manifest here the supramental consciousness which alone has the capacity to annihilate all the negation, all the limitations which come with the tremendous capacities that the mind has. Mind has created a wonderful civilization, no doubt about it. And mind is a wonderful thing. But it is not a complete thing. It has to be energized, it has to be made perfect by forces of a different kind. And that's what the whole of Ashwapati's yoga is talking about. Ashwapati's yoga, simply Ashwapati goes into the entire history, we'll talk about it maybe a couple of days from today. In some detail, and Ashwapati's yoga, Ashwapati finds there is no power here now which can bring man to perfection. All revolutions fail. All revolutions will fail because these revolutions do not do anything basically to the human consciousness, the constitution of human consciousness. That is left exactly as it is. We change the outer surroundings, but the man remains untouched. This will not do. And therefore, just as from the beast emerged man, man is very close to the beast except in one respect. He has what is called mental consciousness. The new man is going to come. He will be very much exactly like us. He will not have two heads and four hands. He will be exactly like us. But he will have a new part of consciousness which will make discord impossible. <clears throat> there won't be any discord, disharmony. It is this new part that has to come. <clears throat> and that is one of the symbolic, <coughs> one of the meanings of the Ashwapati symbol. And <coughs> these people are pointing out four or five fingers. <laughs> <laughs> there is one more thing, major theme I'll get a bit later, and that theme here, too, in fact, the whole question of fate, as you can see, this was the day when Satyavan must die. Why must that? There is the fate. And how fate works in human lives, Shirovindo says in double terms. Fate works in double terms. That's a very fascinating theme here. And another equally fascinating theme, we'll come back to theme, we'll come back to it, is man's tendency to reject divine grace. The Divine is so much in love with this world, so much in love with humanity. His grace comes down so frequently. All the Mahatmas, 
all the great saints, they are all representatives of this grace. What do we do to these Mahatmas? We listen to their talks. A Mahatma comes, in Hyderabad I won't name Mahatmas, there are so many. 25,000, 30, 40, 50, 60,000, 100,000 people listening to the Mahatma. I very often wonder to myself, if in my little place called Hyderabad, 100,000 people have spiritual quest, why is the life in Hyderabad such a big mess? <laughs> we all come because the Mahatmas speak well, make us feel good, they quote from scriptures, we feel very happy. He quotes from the Gita, he quotes from the Upanishad. Oh, his knowledge of the Vedas is wonderful. We don't know what the Vedas are. Anything that is Sanskrit, we think are Vedas. That is the extent of our traditional learning these days. Grace has come again and again and again. But man has refused to accept divine grace. And we are only asking more and more people coming with grace. Your window says, that won't do. Can't we do something to man? which will open his eyes and compel him to accept grace. <laughs>